Welcome to Ebenezer Baptist Church on November 10th, 2013. Today's message is titled, Overcoming the World, by Pastor Tony Tremblay. And it's based on scripture, John, chapter 16, verses 25 to 33. Well, those of you who are challengers know that I speak here quite often on Wednesday mornings to that group, but it's always downstairs in the basement. So I'm very grateful today to the elders, to Darren and the others, for deciding that the time has come to let Tony out of the basement. <laughs> My last time, I think, standing in this pulpit was in the spring of 2009 at the end of my pastoral internship. Those of you who've been around for a while will remember that I served 13 months here as your intern, and Ebenezer was incredibly supportive to me during that time, and it is great to be back. On this Remembrance Day weekend, we are called to remember those who put their lives on the line in order for us to live in a free country. And at this time, I would like to ask all of our veterans to stand or raise your hand as you are able so that we might honor you this morning. Do we have any veterans with us? It seems unusual for a group this size. But I know that we are all thankful for the veterans in our city and around our country who've defended us and the cause of peace and freedom around the world. In 1897, as Queen Victoria celebrated diamond jubilee of her reign, and as Great Britain celebrated an empire that spanned the globe, Rudyard Kipling produced a poem to celebrate Victoria's long reign. Kipling was one of England's great literary voices, and through works such as Kim and the Jungle Book, had earned a reputation as the poet laureate of the British Empire. But the poem that he produced for the diamond jubilee was hardly one of imperial triumph. Its title, Recessional, which suggests things ending and passing away, sounded a somber note of caution to a nation proud of its imperial accomplishments. Kipling used the refrain, lest we forget, lest we forget, to remind his countrymen and women that their empire too could pass away just like the ancient empires of Nineveh and Tyre, if they forgot the God who alone had the power to guard and save them from their pride and their arrogance, their frantic boast and foolish word, Kipling calls it. Kipling's poem was a warning that God and not Britain had conquered the world, and it would please God to preserve the empire as long as the British remembered that fact. Today, Kipling's poem is largely forgotten, but the words of his refrain, lest we forget, still have a place in our minds and our hearts as we, here in what used to be part of the British Empire and is now part of the Commonwealth, approach what we variously called Armistice Day or Remembrance Day. Sometimes these words, lest we forget, 
are carved on cenotaphs. And if we care to read these words and ponder them, they confront us with a challenge that something important is at stake here, that there are risks involved if we were to forget about the meaning of this day. I think it is worth asking just what would happen if we forgot about Remembrance Day. If we were to forget about Remembrance Day, we would forget the sacrifice of those who served, both the sacrifice of our veterans, old and now with Iraq and Afghanistan, new, young, and of our war dead, past and present. Forgetting our veterans would be to devalue the civic virtues of service and the idea that some causes are worth great and ultimate cost. In forgetting these causes, such as the liberation of the Netherlands in World War II, or our attempts today, however frustrating and tentative they may be, to better the lot of the people of Afghanistan, we would devalue our sense of connectedness and obligation to other peoples, both at home and around the world, replacing that obligation with apathy and self-absorption. Forgetting our veterans and the causes they served means forgetting the stories which define us. A Britain which forgets its finest hour, or a Canada which forgets its coming of age at Vimy Ridge, would be diminished as a people, less a nation than a collection of individual amnesiacs. And finally, a nation that forgets these things would not be worth remembering by those who come after, except as an object lesson, like Nineveh and Tyre, countries that ended up in the dustbin of history. And yet, memories are such strange things. They're so necessary for self-understanding, but so very flexible and sometimes very fickle. Memory is the seamstress and a capricious one at that, writes for Virginia Woolf in her novel Orlando. Memory runs her needle in and out, up and down, hither and thither. We know not what comes next or what follows after. Now, depending on where we stand and what our life experiences have been, the seamstress can take us in many directions. On this Remembrance Day weekend, our first thoughts might fly toward those who made what has been termed the supreme sacrifice, who laid down their lives in the cause of peace and freedom. Roles of honor, such as those found in the foyers of many churches and monuments standing in cities and small towns throughout our country, they all call us to remember young men and women who put their lives on the line in the name of a grand expectation and whose individual deaths broke hearts and destroyed hopes for so many families. Memories will take some of us along the paths of strengthening patriotism, the shared cause, the tight comradeship found amongst those who fought side by side in the trenches. And we might regard the courage and the cowardice of those dark days. Some of us will bring to mind those who fought bravely, those who fought well. Some of us will weep for the horrendous loss 
of what could have been. One song says a generation butchered like lambs to the slaughter. Some will bring to mind the abuse and suffering of people considered collateral damage. What a horrific term for human beings, collateral damage. For others, the much maligned conscientious objectors will come to mind. Those who say, no, I'm taking a stand. My conscience won't let me fight. We each bring memories, sometimes contradictory, but nonetheless providing us with the raw material with which we might come to better understand ourselves individually and as a people. But memories are not just about dwelling in the past. They have the potential to restore or to destroy the future. They can provide us with links to that future as our way of learning lessons from the past in order to guide us in our living in the present, which, of course, becomes the future. Memories can be the source of our hopes and the vision of a better world for our children and our children's children. But it is not guaranteed that memories will lead us in a positive direction. It's possible for our recollections to drive us and thus the world toward hatred, revenge, and more war. Now you may have noticed that I've not said anything about God thus far. And you would be quite right to wonder where I am going spiritually with this topic. One can observe Remembrance Day quite adequately without having any religious convictions. These things that I have suggested are at stake, lest we forget, are civic virtues of service and sacrifice and a national cohesion that comes from remembering our stories and using them to chart our purpose for good in the world. And one can subscribe to these values without believing, as Kipling did about the British Empire, that Canada enjoys any divine blessing or God-given role as a world leader. But you, however, have come to church this morning either because you are Christians or because you are curious about what the church has to say. For the church, we too are a people who have much at stake, lest we forget. Since God rescued his faithful people from Egypt and the slavery there so long ago, he has tasked us with the duty of remembrance. It's a sacred trust. The Psalms, for example, remind God's people never to forget the God who has never forgotten them. Psalm 136 reminds us, he remembered us in our lowest state. His love endures forever. And freed us from our enemies. His love endures forever. He gives food to every creature. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven. His love endures forever. The same divine love that sustained Israel is given to us in the person of God's Son. And in our gospel text today, we hear some of the last words that Jesus gives to his disciples. He warns them that he will soon be leaving them and leaving the world, going back to the Father. They will be scattered 
And he says something to them so that they may have peace, the scripture tells us. And here's the crux of my message this morning. Jesus does not give them something to look forward to. And that might surprise some of you. Jesus does not give them something to look forward to, but ask them to remember something that has already happened. Take heart, he says. I have overcome the world. Now this is the mild Lamb of God saying he has conquered the world. What is Jesus saying and how are we to understand this extraordinary claim? First, Jesus is repeating the same message he gives throughout the Gospel of John, that he and the Father are one, that they are of the same purpose and power in the world. John also reminds us that the Father created the world and created all the things in it, but evil and darkness and death, and this is especially true of wartime, make us lose sight of God, lead us to doubt his power, and even, in extreme cases, to doubt his existence. Because we have trouble seeing the Father, he has sent his Son and given him power over all things in the world, even power over evil and death as demonstrated by his resurrection. Now, to be a Christian, as I know many of us are here today, is to believe and to remember that God has won this great victory through his Son, that the world is indeed overcome, and that the details of this conquest will be laid out in time. What kind of conquest has our Savior achieved? Two answers come to mind. First, we can say that our risen Lord has conquered the power of death, as St. Paul says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? A confident Christian taunting death itself, where is your sting? This conquest is not just about the hope of celestial life after death, as important as that is. For us as citizens of a free country, this is the knowledge that the dealers of death we confront, the suicide bombers, the ethnic cleansers, the wardens of the prison states, are on the wrong side of history. In the cosmic struggle between God and evil, their power is already broken, and this should give us hope and give us purpose. Second, as followers of the God who will reunite the earth, our quarrel is only with those who practice hatred and division. For we have the promise from the prophet Micah that all nations will one day stream to God's heavenly mountain. Micah writes, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Aren't those magnificent words? Is there any wonder that that is carved as a motto outside the United Nations building? There may not be believers there. Not many of them aren't. They're from religions, belief systems, and agnostics and atheists, all from around the world. 
but they agree on something. That there is this hope that one day, one day, nation will not take up sword against nation. We will not train for war anymore. And no one has put it better than the prophet Micah. And we have the promise of Paul in Ephesians that God himself is our peace and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Now these promises remind us that Remembrance Day is not about old divisions between former enemies, but about the hope that our sacrifices and conflicts will lead the people of earth ultimately to greater unity. We need to remember these promises whenever we encounter these things which tempt us back into the divisions that God hates and has sworn to end. How many people recognize this date, June 6, 1944? On that day, known ever since as D-Day, a mighty armada crossed a narrow strip of sea from England to Normandy, France, and cracked the Nazi grip on Western Europe. The battle was far from being over. There would be months and months of more combat and many, many more casualties. But this battle, this day, was the beginning of a decisive victory. Final victory was certain, even if the war was not altogether over. And how many people recognize this date, May 9th, 1945? This is the day that the German army surrendered unconditionally to the Allied forces. This is known as VE Day, when the Allied victory in Europe was secured. And this very brief history lesson tells us that the decisive battle of a war may be won before the enemy is willing to acknowledge defeat, or even before the enemy realizes that it is defeated. Fighting may continue for a time, although the outcome of the war has already been determined. The final ceasefire and the official declaration of victory are only the inevitable result of the decisive battle already fought. Imagine having to fight a war, but also knowing that ultimate victory was inevitable for you. There are more battles to fight, but D-Day has come and gone, and Victory Day, while still ahead, is guaranteed. How would that affect your performance in battle? Would you still fear defeat? Would you still fear your enemy? Or would you instead feel confident and victorious, even if present circumstances didn't seem to justify such a posture and attitude? Well, during World War II, the Allied forces didn't have the benefit of foreknowledge, of knowing that a victory at Normandy would mean ultimate victory for them and the defeat of Nazi Germany. But what about us as Christians? This is something that our passage talks about today, that there has been a decisive victory, even if the final declaration and celebration is still a little while off. And you, you, you as Christians, as believers today, you are on the winning side. Between the pain of Jesus' death and the joy of his resurrection stands the cross, and to return to our history lesson, the cross 
represents D-Day. Jesus going to the cross and his being raised marked the decisive defeat of the enemy, the overcoming of the darkness by the light of Jesus Christ. Now the victory might not be evident when we look at the world around us, and indeed that evidence is sometimes sorely lacking. But we know that in Christ the world has been overcome. Victory day is on the horizon and its arrival is imminent. Jesus' death and resurrection are the central event in history. Preacher George Sweeting calls it the most crucial event in all history, the one crisis that forms a watershed by which we number our years, write all of our history, and reckon on our relationship with God. We know we are victorious, that Christ has defeated death and won for us the victory to end all victories, and that the decisive battle has been fought and won on a, not on a battlefield on the shores of France, but on an instrument of Roman brutality and humility, on a cross. And what looks like defeat is victory. The one who looks like a loser is actually the victor. But as we prepare to gather at cenotaphs and monuments tomorrow, it is a time of uncertainty for the descendants of the empire that Kipling celebrated. As in Kipling's poem, Recessional, there is a sense of things receding and fading. Even our neighbors to the south, whose Pax Americana, the great American peace of the 20th century that followed the British Empire, now seems to sense that their best days are behind them, preoccupied with things like not falling over the fiscal cliff. The West seems to have lost purpose. New powers like China arise. Economies falter. Armies and fleets become burdensome to maintain, and their ability to bring change to a complex world seems suddenly to be in question. Many of us doubt our leader's ability to lead us anywhere good. And this Remembrance Day, we look from the pride and the victories of the past to the uncertainties of the future, and there are many. But as we gather tomorrow, we as Canadians can remember with pride the accomplishments of those who went before us and know with certainty what is at stake lest we forget. And as Christians, we can look forward with confidence to the future, trusting not in our own strength, but in the promise of our King and Savior who declared that I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. We Christians stake everything we are on one astonishing fact. It all comes down to this, that God has raised Jesus Christ from the dead. He knew no sin, but became sin for us, tasting death for all of us, and overcame sin and death. He who was from the very foundation of the world Scripture tells us, by whom all things were created, 
so that without him not anything made that was made. Very God himself, very God himself went through the torture of the cross and the agony of death for us and was raised from the dead to become the first fruits of those who sleep, to be the guarantee that what God has begun, he will complete. The risen Christ is all we have, friends, but I tell you, he is everything. He is everything, and he has overcome the world. Let's pray. Today, O oh God, we remember times of war, times when men and women served our nation and fought and died so that we and so many others might live in freedom. We are saddened to remember the lives that were lost and the cost that so many paid so that the world might not live in fear of oppression and violence. Today, God, we remember and we are thankful for the sacrifices that our soldiers and sailors and air crews made so that their brothers and sisters and the generations that have followed them, both here and in other nations, could live in peace. We recall those who served in places far from here and those who served at home. And we thank you for what they did to hold high the torch and to take up the quarrel with the foe. We thank you, O God, and we pray today for those like them who are serving Canada at home and abroad in our armed forces, that you would keep them safe and bring them home soon. And finally, most gracious God, we pray as well that all people on earth will learn to live together as one family, to share that none will be hungry or homeless, to care so that none will be oppressed or afflicted by violence, to love and to respect one another despite our differences, so that freedom might be more than a word, and so that life might be more than a struggle to survive. We ask it in the name of the Prince of Peace. Amen. <laughs>